Well, thank you this morning for your worship. I always enjoy when uh, Scott Engel uh, is our soloist for the day, and I'm grateful for a choir and orchestra. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to chapter 6 of Exodus. This morning, we're going to begin in verse 28 and end in verse 13 of chapter 7. But I want to say just a few uh, brief comments about what takes place prior to verses 28. If you notice, within Exodus 6 from last week, I deliberately skipped over the list of the genealogy that is there uh, in in the text. Not something that is uh, typically preached by preachers, but worth noting uh, at least one significant point. I think anytime that we come to genealogies, we begin to read names that we are not familiar with, almost as if these names have been living in obscurity in some way. I think the point there, why God includes those genealogies for us to read through, though time does not permit us this morning, is to remind us of one simple truth that I want you to hear from that word. And it's simply this. There are no insignificant and small people in the kingdom of God. These names that are obscure, these names that you're not familiar with, these families that have their name written into this book for us to see and to at least acknowledge, I believe, as one theologian rightly said, are there to remind us that every single one of us play an important role in the kingdom of God. Now, with that being said, let's turn our attention, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 6, where the word of the Lord says this. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Pray with me just for a moment. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that you would change us as your people. We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen. Years ago, I read about a city boy that moved to the country. He approached a farmer one day and he said, I want to buy one of your donkeys from that farmer. And the farmer said, that's fine. That'll be $100. Now the farmer agreed to deliver this donkey or this mule the next day. And so the next day, the farmer drove to the young city boy who had just bought a house out in the country and said, I'm sorry, but I have some terrible news for you. The donkey has died. Well, the young city boy said, that's okay, just give me my money back. And the farmer said, I can't do that. I've already spent the $100 that you gave me. So the city boy responded, that's fine, just unload the dead donkey. I still want him. And the farmer said, well, what in the world are you going to do with that dead donkey? And the young city boy said, well, I'm going to have a raffle, and I'm going to raffle off this donkey. And the farmer said, you can't raffle off a dead donkey. That's not right. And the young city boy said, sure, I can. Watch me. I just won't tell anybody in the raffle that the donkey has already died. So a month later, the farmer goes and he checks up on that young city boy. And he asked him, whatever happened with that dead donkey? And the young city boy said, well, I raffled him off and I sold 500 tickets for $2 a piece. And I made a profit of $898. And the farmer said, well, didn't anyone complain? And the young city boy said, just the guy who won, so I gave him his $2 back. (laughs) You know, deception and deceit can come in a variety of ways. 
Whether we're seeking to sell dead donkeys that no one knows about or being deceived by the great deceiver within this world, being deceived by others perhaps and and being deceived into doing things that we didn't intend to do and where our responsibility plays a role in those things. I believe that in chapter 7 we see perhaps one of the greatest deceptions in all of Scripture and particularly within this book, within the Old Testament, within Exodus. But before we see that deception, I want us to notice, beginning in verse 28, this day when the Lord begins to speak to Moses. And he says, say everything that I tell you to say. And then Moses responds in a peculiar way. He says, I am of uncircumcised lips. How in the world will Pharaoh listen to me? You see, Moses at 80 years old had a a deep insecurity amongst himself. To speak before the most powerful man in existence and all of the kingdoms combined. And God had appointed Moses to go and be the messenger. To be the one to announce God's intention for his people to be freed from the hands of the Pharaoh. And Moses just simply says, how is it that I can be the one that speaks to him? You can feel And you can see his inadequacy. You can see and and hear in the text in this moment how Moses felt like he wasn't up to the task, that the task was too great before him. And I think by way of application, this reminds us in this moment that God uses inadequate people to bring about his redemptive purposes. He uses those that feel they are not up to the task. He uses those that that know of their incapability of accomplishing the thing that God has called them to do. Those are typically the people that God pulls out of the congregation amongst the pew and he places them in positions oftentimes of influence and, and power and even authority. Those that humbly walk with the Lord their God. So God takes this inadequate man And then he goes on to say, and the Lord said to Moses in verse one of chapter seven, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron, he shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall be the one that tells Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. Now in the English translation out of the Hebrew in this moment of this little phrase, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. It literally comes out of the Hebrew and it reads a little bit different that the ESV doesn't quite get it right, but it literally reads, I have made you not like God to Pharaoh, but rather I have made you God to Pharaoh in this moment. Not like a God, not equal to him. But in this moment, what God is saying to Moses is I have made you God to him and you are gonna be my representative before the most powerful man in all of the kingdoms, my chosen prophet. And God himself was gonna speak to and through Moses and Aaron. Now this strikes at the heart of the theology of the Egyptians in this moment. Because you see, in the Egyptians' culture and their theology, they embodied the Pharaoh as being the one that was considered divine. 
He was the divinity. He was the God. And so when God says, not I have just made you like God to Pharaoh, but rather I have made you God to Pharaoh, what he was doing in this moment, he was directly attacking the very nature and the very essence of who the Pharaoh thought he was and who his people believed him to be. And he's going right at him, not flinching, not wavering. But Moses, you will go, and the idea here behind this is God could have appeared to Pharaoh at any given point just as he appeared to Moses, could he have not? He could have uh, come forward in the form of a burning bush that was not consumed, but, but rather than doing that, what God chose to do in this moment is to use two human beings made in his image to accomplish his purposes. And oftentimes we are left to wonder, God, isn't there an easier way to do these things that you wish to do? But instead, we're reminded of this truth that God uses people to accomplish his mission. And he's using Moses and he's using Aaron in this moment to speak before him, but make no mistake about it. Even though God uses people to accomplish his purposes, to deliver his messages, to announce the good news, delivering people from the shackles of sin is always God's job. He is the one that saves. He is the one that redeems. He is the one that delivers. He is the one that brings us forward from darkness and into light. It is his job. Yet in the midst of his mission... He decrees in his sovereignty, he declares that he chooses to use you and he chooses to use me. To live on mission with him. To be the vessel and to be the, the agent that announces the very things that God would, would tell us to announce. But I want you to notice in verse three, this phrase that we've heard repeated throughout this book so far. But I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh, he will not, in this moment, he will not listen to you. Four times in this book calls attention, and this chapter in particular will call attention to the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And when we read some extra biblical literature that helps us understand how the Egyptians viewed the heart, we find this statement in verse three even more noteworthy. Why? Because ancient Egyptian texts teach this truth, that the heart is the very essence of the person, the inner spiritual center of the self. Sounds very new age in this moment, yet it is very old. And Pharaoh's heart in this moment was particularly important. Why? Because the Egyptians believed in this moment that the all-controlling factor in all of history and in all society resided in the heart of the Pharaoh. Why? Because two gods in particular, the God of Ra and Horus, who were sovereign over everything, had been reincarnated in the heart of the Pharaoh. And so he was divine in their eyes. And his heart was the thing that made everything else work, that created all the power, that determined everything else. And so when God says, I will be the one 
that controls this very perceived power by the Egyptians. I will be the one that controls these two gods who live inside the heart of the Pharaoh. I will be the one to harden it or I will be the one to soften it. Why? Because I am the one who is sovereign. And I will do this to demonstrate my my power. I will do this to demonstrate my might. I will do this to demonstrate that I have authority over all things. And so therefore what God was doing in this moment is he was speaking on theological terms that the Egyptians would understand. He was speaking in terms that the slaves, the Hebrews of the Pharaoh would have understand. He was proving alone that he is sovereign over all things and nothing that happens is outside of the purpose of his will. Not even the hard heart of a king. See, the truth of the gospel for you and I to be reminded of this morning is that all of us have been born with a spiritual hardness in our hearts because of Adam. And unbelief, as we know it today, it's a matter of the heart. And the Bible is crystal clear in this, that God must be the one that gives a person a soft heart that allows them to repent and allows him to believe and to call upon the name of the Lord. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26. It is he that must open the deaf ears and make the blind see. Because according to scripture, you don't just have bad vision. According to scripture, you cannot see at all. And it must be God who opens our eyes. It must be God who allows us to see. It must be God who brings the dead and makes them alive. Because delivering us from our sin is God's word dependent upon his sovereign power and his goodness. And while in one sense we should be winsome and wise and even cunning at times and persuasive in how we go about living our lives so that the world sees the gospel, that the world sees our risen Savior in us, ultimately we rest in the truth that the final outcome is always and only and ever has been in God's hands. And so we trust it. It's why ultimately we don't fear rejection when we share the gospel. It's why ultimately we don't fear rejection when we try to love our neighbors and and instead of loving us back, perhaps they become hostile or they become indifferent or apathetic. Why? Because the results of those actions, the results of that living, the results of that proclamation, it lies solely with God. Verse four, the text continues and he says, and I will lay my hand on Egypt. And I will bring my host and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and I bring out the people of Israel from among them. And so Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Notice those words, just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to the Pharaoh. Two noteworthy things in this moment. One, we see a shift finally in verse six of chapter seven about Moses' willingness without hesitancy to follow God exactly and precisely as God has commanded him to do. 
Up until this moment, Moses had been sort of twisting the words and reversing the words and his tone didn't match the tone of what God had intended and what God had meant. But yet in this moment, finally, we see a glimpse of oftentimes the the person that we idolize in Moses and we see in him, he does everything just as the Lord has commanded him. And what I think this teaches us as a people of God, these three little words, the Lord commanded them, God's people have a responsibility to faithfully deliver God's message and not their own. Our responsibility to speak the words that, that God has spoken, to deliver those words in the fullness of truth, full of his spirit, faithfully delivering his message and not our own. Woe be to the preacher or teacher that seeks to deliver their own words. But number two, I want you to see in verse seven, we've talked about this prior to today, the age of Moses, 80 years old, and the age of Aaron, 83 years old. I'm not 80 years old yet, but I know some of you are. I know as you get older, oftentimes, even as a 39-year-old pastor, as I, and with our college students and with our high school students, I feel like the oddball out. I feel like I don't fit in quite with that group. And I think it's just age that sort of uh, matures you in different ways and it grows you in different ways. But, but I know having worked with senior adults and, and boomers and everybody in between, the older you get, oftentimes what can happen is we can fall into the lie that we are not, no longer needed in the kingdom. That we are no longer valued in the local church. Friend, can I tell you that throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon talks about the, the gray hairs that have begun to appear on your head. And what that means is you've just been seasoned in just the right way. And the older you get and the more deeply you walk with Jesus, the more faithful your walk is, the more that your better years are in front of you. Whether you are 80 years old or 83, they're not behind you. God is not done with you yet. And we labor, we work, and we sweat, and we bleed until, until we take that last breath. Until we rise up and, or fall on our knees and we see our Savior there for the first time with no sin in between us. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded at 80 years old and 83 They were still doing in this moment precisely what God had wanted them to do. The text goes on in verse eight. And he says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, there is a theological debate here in this moment within all the commentaries on what actually constituted a serpent here in this moment. We saw in previous chapters that, that God demonstrated this power in Moses' life and, and he threw the, the, stone, the staff down and it became a serpent. And, and what happens is in the Hebrew, there's two different terms that are being used in the previous chapters of chapter three and four. And now in this moment, there's a different word that is used for serpents. 
And the word that's used in chapter four is just a Hebrew word called nakash. And the word used here in this moment is tannin. And, and nakash has this connotation of a serpent, a cobra, a, 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 a snake, if you will. But yet in this moment, we've seen other translations that will render the word tannin in this moment. They'll render it like a, like a reptile or a, or a crocodile or, or a dragon even in some instances. So the debate with amongst the scholars is, well, well, did when he threw it down this time, Aaron, and he uses his different word, did it, does it mean something other than what we saw it mean in chapter four? And the answer is simply, uh, we can know definitively, primarily because in Deuteronomy 32, the word tannin is used for the word serpent. And so what that means is, is that your pastor spent uh, four or five hours trying to distinguish the meaning between both of them and realized he had wasted the entirety of his time and his week trying to figure out that it was still just a snake. <laughs> Scholars, you gotta love them. And so in this moment, he throws the staff down before the Pharaoh and it becomes a serpent. And then it says, the Pharaoh summoned up his wise men in verse 11 and the sorcerers, that they and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs and still yet in this moment, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Of all the signs that God could have given to Pharaoh, he chose in this moment to turn Aaron's staff into a serpent. Why? Because I think this teaches us and it tells us something even more significant about this moment. We've talked in previous weeks about how the snake and the cobra uh, was the uh, serpent that was used, the symbol that, that was used to signify the power of the Pharaoh. Uh, these Egyptians in this moment, they feared deeply these snakes. So much so that, that out of that fear arose this literal worship of these things. They revered them and they, they respected them, but they were mostly afraid of them. And oftentimes, can I tell you this, that the devil is cunning in what he does and he will more often use fear. He will use fear to convince a sense of false worship. And that fear can come in a variety of forms, the uncertainty about what is to come and letting the fear being the thing that primarily motivates us. And in this moment, the Egyptians were certainly afraid of snakes because they worshiped them and they feared these snakes. And it was this fear that led Pharaoh to use the serpent as the symbol of his royal authority, of his sovereignty, that he was the one that was in control. His ceremonial headdress was crested with a fierce female cobra. And the idea was that the Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way the cobra strikes fear into her prey. Using fear to gain power. Sound familiar? Often in our political landscapes, this is the very thing that we often hear, the fear to gain the power. But Pharaoh wasn't gonna be outdone in this moment and so he summons up his sorcerers and he summons up his magicians and all of his wise men. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this moment. You see, in the Egyptian culture, magic was the main element in the Egyptian religion at this time. It was the superstition. 
It was the sleight of hand. And these priests possess what the Egyptians call this secret knowledge, if you will, and these secret ways. And they were skilled in all of these mysteries and all of these uncertainties. And the question then comes, well, how did they do what they did? They seemed to copy and to mimic the very thing that God had done in that moment. There are several possibilities. One just simply being that it was a a sleight of hand if you will. They said, look this way when they replaced the the staff with a a serpent and and sort of deceived the room, if you will, but didn't actually perform the miracle. Others would say that these priests and these magicians were were winsome and crafty snake charmers. You know that you can actually induce snakes to go to sleep by holding them on their neck. And what a common Egyptian practice was in this moment is this priest or this magician would come and the text would say that he would come up and he would spit down the throat of the snake. And the reason why he would do that is it would keep the mouth of the snake closed. And then he would grab the snake by the neck and there are these two nerves in the neck and he could pinch the neck, pinch the neck. My East Texan's coming out. He would pinch the neck. (laughs) He would pinch the neck and the snake would stiffen up. And he could throw the snake on the ground and the snake would be as straight as a staff. And then to take the the snake and to remove it from its comatose state, he would grab it by the tail and he would shake it and he would wiggle it. And so that is a, a second plausibility that exists. But there's a third that I think is even more compelling and perhaps more real. And not seeking to demythologize and and to find a natural explanation in this moment, I rather think a third option that's the most plausible is that Pharaoh's priests performed. Their wonders, in particular, these miraculous things by the power of Satan himself, by the devil himself. I think that's perhaps the most plausible why, because we see in this moment, it says at the end of verse 11, he did the same by their secret arts. And oftentimes when the Bible speaks of the secret arts, it's referring specifically to demonic spells and incantations throughout the Old Testament. It's a link that what they were doing in this moment was not just even worshiping uh, Pharaoh himself, but Pharaoh was just a tool to ultimately deviate the hearts and to move the hearts away from the Lord their God. But I want you to notice that if this is the answer in this moment, as Jesus refers to Satan in John 12, 31, as the prince of this world, he roams about this world like a lion seeking those to whom he will devour. Seeking those to whom he will devour. But I think it's noteworthy to point out this idea that the best that they could do in this moment was just simply imitate. They couldn't create. You see, one of the the chief things about the devil himself is that Satan can only corrupt. He can never create. And so all that he does is seek to imitate what God has created and what God has done. And Aaron's victory in this moment as his staff swallows up their staff, yet Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. His victory over Pharaoh teaches us something unique about spiritual warfare, if you will, for just a moment. Though Satan is not explicitly named in this moment, he is certainly implicitly here. 
And he is present in the court of the Pharaoh. And I want to remind us of just a few things about him. Number one, we see through this text and others that Satan's power is real, but it is not absolute. But he is real. And oftentimes I think we minimize the reality that he is real. Satan can only do what God allows him to do in the limits of his power. We're going to see that later on when the the Egyptians are utterly defenseless against the, the plagues. And so his magicians in this moment were able to mimic some things, but eventually their secret arts are swallowed up by God himself. Number two is this, Satan is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, he's, nor is he eternal. He doesn't know everything, he doesn't see everything, he's not everywhere at all times, he's not all powerful, and one day he will be defeated. He will not live forever in the way that our God is eternal. There was a time when Satan was not. There was a, never a time when the Son of God was not. He always has been. He always will be. We see this moment in Job 1.6 where the Lord asks Satan, where have you come from? To which he responds, from roaming the earth. He has been physically positioned in the universe, but he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Most likely he's not at your house and he is not your neighbor. Yet the wars that we wage are the things that we cannot see. And he has minions and he has helpers, certainly. And our battle that Paul reminds us in Ephesians is not against the flesh and the blood. But thirdly, we see that Satan can too manipulate matter and he can manipulate weather systems and even bacterial life. Or he is the one who infects Job with a skin disease. The purpose to afflict him. He's capable of of these types of things. He could have plausibly turned a wooden stick into a serpent if he's able to do these types of things. He can manipulate those things, but Satan can more particularly sway governmental structures. He can have influence on them which is why we should pray against this. In Revelation 2.10, we see that Jesus states that Satan is in the process of influencing Smyrna's legal proceedings by throwing a collection of Christians into prison. He is undermining the, the governmental structures that exist here in this moment. He is disrupting the government, if you will, of the Pharaoh. And we're gonna see that beginning next week as the plagues began to come in and there is economic calamity and people began to die. Satan can sway these structures and his kingdom can be undermined. And lastly, I wanna say this to you. Satan is more skilled at deception than any other created being. He's smarter than you. He's more crafty than you. He's more powerful than you. In John 8, 44, it says that the very nature of Satan himself is to lie. If his mouth is moving, he is lying about something. He's the original liar and therefore the father of lies. Every lie that was and is birthed, that has been, was birthed in him first. Now you may say, well, pastor, what an encouraging and uplifting way to to finish off a message. Why would you do that to us this morning? My, My hope is not to instoke fear in you, but to remind you of this moment that there is no such thing as a peacetime when it comes to the Christian. As Bernie prayed earlier, there are things that are moving behind the scenes and in places that we can't see and can't know. And our great adversary wants nothing more than to destroy you and to eliminate you from the kingdom of God. 
But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus that he cannot do the thing that he wishes to do. But what he does want to do today, though he can't take your soul and he can't defeat you, what he does want to do today is to subtly perhaps move your heart away from the things of the kingdom, away from God himself. To undermine, to create false loves and idols in your life that don't reflect the loves and the idols that God wishes and wants us to have, the the things that he wants us to to not worship in front of him, but to worship him truly and and rightly and, and with abandonment and with faith. The Bible says that all those who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. The Bible says that it is our job to equip one another, to grow one another up in the faith, to be aware of how our enemy works, but more importantly, not to become infatuated with him, but rather because of knowing those truths that we become more and more infatuated with our Savior and that we love him deeper today than we did yesterday. And so would you call upon his name in this moment? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and you would change us. We recognize that all behind the scenes, there are so many things that we can't see and lay our eyes to, to know, but you know. And so, Father in heaven, we pray today that whether we give our lives to you for the very first time and trust you as our Lord and Savior, or if we just remind ourselves today as we gather of the church that we are still choosing to follow you, we have decided to follow you. Father, would you help us do that with faithfulness? Would you help us do that with grit and determination? So Father, if there is anyone here today that has not called upon your name, I pray they would do so today. Confess their sins, repent of those sins, and call upon your name. And we know that you will be faithful to save them right where they sit, right where they're at. For we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.